Hey, welcome again. Thanks for being here with us today. The story continues. So uh, at Easter, we celebrate this pinnacle moment in the story of God in Scripture and in our church calendar. That is resurrection. We remember Jesus as he rose from the dead, and we celebrate together in that. But what's fascinating is that the story doesn't end there. It goes on. And so for the past few weeks, we've been exploring the way the story continues. And we talked about uh, the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, this beautiful promise of Jesus being fulfilled, the Holy Spirit coming and the church beginning. We talked about the nature of the church the last few weeks as we considered uh, the, the church gathered, both in a Sunday gathering like this and the church as it gathers in homes, around tables, uh, in our community, in our neighborhoods, a church that gathers for a purpose. God gathers us. He calls us together uh, so that he can send us. And so a couple weeks ago, we talked about the church that is sent. We talked about missions and the state of missions and the history of missions and uh, how we uh, choose to engage in the mission of God as a church. Last week, Sarah spoke on advocacy as a continuation of this story, uh, a people uh, like Esther in the Old Testament who advocate for her people and Jesus' definition of who are our people, who are our neighbor, uh, it's anyone that we come in contact, but we are those that advocate for those that do not have a voice to speak. Um, and so uh, this week we continue the story uh, again about the church. Now, a couple weeks ago when I was talking about the church that was sent and the mission of God, um, I, I made this statement and it got some response which really excited me because it meant people got this concept. Uh, I said this, um, we go into the neighborhood, we go into the community, not to bring God, but to meet him there, okay? And that's going to be the premise of our conversation today. Uh, we go into the neighborhood or the community, not to bring God to a people that don't have him, to a place that he doesn't exist, but instead to meet God in that place. Now, let me, let me um, couch that a little bit. Let me, let me frame this conversation a little bit more. Have you ever been on a mission trip? It's fun to raise your hand. Who, who's been on a short-term or long-term mission trip? Who's, who's traveled to do mission work? Yeah, a lot of people in here have. Um, it's a remarkable experience. And sometimes we engage in uh, missions, especially as we go overseas to a, a, a place in the majority world. Um, uh, often we go th thinking that we're coming to fix a problem or bring some sort of resolution or hope to people there. And there's an element of truth to that. Uh, we get to engage in things that bless the lives of people and, and, and get to invite them to draw nearer to Jesus. Um, however, for those of us that have been on mission, short-term and long-term, many of us have probably had a similar experience in which we came to realize that God was working on us just as much as he was working through us, right? God is working on shaping us. Um, of, of all the countries I've been to on missions over many years and leading youth trips and, and just uh, personally, um, Peru captured my heart like no other place. Um, when I was in Peru, uh, I was we were going to see a missionary, um, a Peruvian man who we as a church supported, uh, who was working on a mission there. Uh, it was a beautiful thing that he was engaged in. And uh, one of the gals that came along with me on that trip had family there. 
And so I had this fascinating experience of the dichotomy of uh, wealth and poverty in Peru. Uh, I got to stay in a doctor's home, and breakfast was served to me every morning uh, in the most beautiful and tropical and fascinating uh, backyard that I've ever seen, right? And then we'd travel during the days to the places that we would preach in and where these small churches were. And uh, there was this one small village um, that's uh, sole in income. Uh, the, the only uh, reason this place existed or, or the only way people were able to make a living in this small village uh, was by making chicha. And chicha is a corn-based beer uh, that uh, a part of the fermentation process is chewing up the corn and the, uh, and, and the ingredients. And it's actually the saliva that, uh, that furthers the fermentation process. What's, uh, what's even crazier about the story is that like in any majority world country, um, uh, children at a young, a very young age become involved in the family practice. And, uh, this process destroys the teeth of these people. Uh, at young ages, kids are exposed to this fermentation process, right? It's a tragic story. And there's this beautiful little church, uh, Oscar, the gentleman, um, that we were uh, supporting and working alongside there in Peru, um, had started a school there in that community to help educate children and families, uh, and, and provide extra opportunities for these young people growing up in the system. Uh, uh, that, that kept them trapped. Um, and uh, so beautiful work was happening there. And I got to go there and I got to speak to the, uh, to the church and to the school and the teachers and many community members. And I'm sure there was some little word of encouragement there for them. But ultimately, I recognized so deeply that God was shaping me through these experiences, opening my eyes to the reality of his presence and his work, even in the most dire of circumstances. Uh, and, and I thank God for the fact that when I go on mission, uh, whether that's to Peru or wherever else we got, we've gone or we're going, um, or, or when I just walk into a neighborhood that, that I know little of, I don't go to bring God to that place. I go to meet him there. He forms me and he invites me, us, to engage in those places. So enter the story of a man named Cornelius. Acts chapter 10. As we continue this story, as we continue to look at the story, the church is formed and it's beautiful and wonderful things are happening. It's beginning to spread amongst Jewish people as they left Pentecost and went back to their hometowns and the cities and the countries in which they lived. They begin to share the story of Jesus uh, with their friends and, and, and their family. And soon, this uh, Jewish sect was growing uh, into uh, what would become known as the Christians or the church. However, keep in mind, and many of us uh, miss this, I've missed this for years of my life, uh, it, up, up to Acts 10, we're talking about a Jewish Christian church, right? A spread of, of the belief in Jesus uh, amongst Jewish peoples, Acts chapter 10 the church begins to change. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. 
Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel spoke to him, uh, when the angel who had spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. All right, let's talk a little bit about the characters and and the setting in which this story is taking place. A man named Cornelius, who is a centurion. That means he is working for uh, the Roman army. And as a centurion, he's um, the commander over 100 other soldiers. Uh, I've heard it said that um, as a centurion, as a commander over 100, he would be making 16 or 17 times the amount of money that the people under him are making. Uh, he is in, um, uh, uh, he's on the fast track. Uh, you know, he's, he's got wealth, he's got prestige, he's a respected man amongst the army, uh, the Roman army. He happens to be stationed in this place uh, called Caesarea. And Caesarea uh, was in uh, northwestern or north central um, on the coast of Israel. Um, keep in mind at this time in the first century, uh, Rome rules the world, uh, including Israel. Uh, they are a vassal state to Rome. And so uh, Caesarea was to be the hub of operation uh, of Roman occupation in Israel. Uh, this is where... Um, uh, you know, decisions would be made and passed down through the through the through Israel. So, this centurion uh, or, or uh, this man Cornelius, uh, who is a centurion, uh, is a wealthy and capable man, and yet it gives this really fascinating description. You see, because he's not a Jewish man. Uh, Cornelius is a military man, and, and yet he is a godly man. He's living a good life. He's doing all these things that Jesus spoke about, you know, uh, to feed orphans, to take care of widows, take care of orphans, feed widows, to take care of people in need. And this is a man who's not Jewish and yet doing these very things. And here's uh, the tricky thing about not being an Israelite in this time period. Uh, you see, he believes the same things, and he's doing the things they're called to do, and yet he's not one of them. Have you ever felt and experienced those sorts of things? Um, uh, you know, when we planted the church, we were committed to this is the order of operation. Uh, this is the story of Jesus and his engagement in the world, uh, at creating places of belonging and love, safe relationship, uh, inviting people to belief, and then uh, experiencing together the transformational work of the Holy Spirit in our lives as we become the people we were created to be. But quite often life doesn't work that way. It did not work that way for this man, Cornelius, and often it doesn't work that way for us. Um, I, I've felt that feeling before uh, many times. But a number of years ago, I decided I was going to join uh, a mountain biking club here in the Tri-Cities. Uh, good exercise, fun hobby, lots of cool stuff to do. Uh, so I went out to the first race of the season, um, uh, and it was uh, a ride up Badger Mountain on the backside there. And uh, they, they ask you, so what's your time? How, how fast are you going to run it? Because they want to put the fastest riders out front and the slowest in the back. That way there's not as much passing on a single track um, race. 
And uh, so I said, I have no clue. I mean, I'm, I didn't train for this. It's not going to be great. Um, and uh, so they put me out literally last person in the pack. So I spent the whole day waiting and passing 60 and 70 year old men and women that were out just for a leisurely time, uh, you know, and, and that totally just eats up your time. So I'm like, okay, maybe it was just a mistake. I don't know. Maybe they didn't mean anything by it. Uh, in the meantime, I talked to friends in the biking community, and they're like, no, it can be a pretty catty people. Like, it can be a tricky club to break into. Well, I finished out that season. I started again the next season. It got a little better after that, that first season. I went to the next one. Uh, I told them my time from last year, minus a little bit, assuming I wouldn't be spending so much time, uh, um, you know, held up and all that. And uh, I told them my time minus a little bit. Well, it turns out there's kind of a way of cheating the system uh, that everyone else uses. So I went out third in the race, and I spent the whole day, even worse than the first time, having to pull over and stop completely on the side to allow the real riders who had uh, sloughed their time to make sure they never got past, past me, right? Uh, miserable experience. Uh, I was incredibly frustrated, uh, and I just walked away. And it's like, why would we create places where new people can't get a footing, you know, can't build a relationship? I mean, it was just like this incredibly imbalanced place. Um, and sometimes we find ourselves stuck in those systems. Sometimes the church finds itself perpetuating those systems. People walk in our doors and feel exactly like I did uh, in that in that mountain biking club, right? But in this story, uh, Cornelius is the man feeling that very thing. He is on the outskirts of Judaism. He can go and he can worship at the temple, uh, but um, he's not going to be allowed to come inside and make the same sacrifice as the Israelite people. He's not going to get invited over for a meal by them because they have all these customs, traditions, and laws that, that restrict the ability for him to enter their home or them to enter his. He is an outsider, though a believer, and a guy passionate about living out the gospel. So uh, at the same time, uh, he sends off these three um, uh, people. He says, go and bring Peter back here as the angel had instructed him. Uh, so a, a day or two later, as they're about to arrive at the place that Peter is staying, Peter is sitting on a rooftop. And for the sake of time, I'm not going to be able to read all this text. I want you to go back and read uh, Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 15 sometimes of this week. It's a beautiful story. I'm just going to have to paraphrase some of it, though, for us today. Um, so a- as the people are approaching the house, Peter's sitting on the rooftop, and he gets hungry. Uh, and so uh, he, he goes into this like trance state, he has this vision, and God lowers down from heaven a sheet, and it's full of animals. And Israelites had all sorts of dietary laws. Uh, they weren't allowed to eat certain things. And these are unclean animals lowered down in a sheet, and God said, you're hungry, so eat it. And Peter says, I've never eaten anything unclean. I, I will not do it. Three times God lowers the sheet and says, go for it. You're hungry. Eat it. And Peter says, I will not compromise. I will not. And God's response to him in this story is this. He says, do not call anything impure that I have made clean. Okay, now this is revolutionary and wrong. Peter's reeling right now. God, what are you telling me? Am I really supposed to be eating these things that for thousands of years of our people's history have been taboo, have been wrong, have have been sinful to associate with? Uh, and, And God says, don't call it 
unclean, the things that I have made pure, that I have made clean. And of course, this is a metaphor, because walking up to the front door at this very moment is three Gentile people. And they come to the door, and a messenger comes up um, to call Peter down. And in verse 21 of chapter 10, uh, Peter went down and he said to them, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, we have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. When Peter invited the men into the, uh, then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. By the way, that's revolutionary. The next day, Peter started out with them, and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. While talking with Peter, uh, while talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, "You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jewish to associate uh, for a Jew to associate with a visit or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection." May I ask why you sent for me? Remember this man, Cornelius, who has been living as an outsider, uh, desperate to get in uh, to the people of God, but left on the fringes. This is a beautiful moment. As the tables are turned, and now Peter, now the church is going to be invited into uncomfortable places where they are the outsider. Whereas a week prior, Peter would have declined the offer. He would not have stayed in the home, nor would he invited the messengers to stay in their place before they left on their journey together. Now, the church is moving into those uncomfortable spaces. Peter is moving into those places where he doesn't come to bring God. He's about to realize God is working in new and remarkable ways. The church is entering into unfamiliar territory. I love the posture of Peter in this. Uh, he takes on the posture of a learner. Right? The first thing he does is he's, well, he gives a little description. I shouldn't be doing this, but God told me to, so I am, right? And then his first thing, so why did you call me? You know, he doesn't come in preaching. He doesn't come in telling them how they need to change or whatever. He comes in asking questions. He comes in with the posture of a learner. He is ready to learn what God is doing and what the request is of these people. So Cornelius explains to him his experience. This is his experience with that angel who said sin for Peter. Verse 34, then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. God does not show favoritism, but accepts people from all nations those that fear him. The term fear him, uh, without going into a ton of detail, this refers to uh, placing God in his proper place in our lives and realizing ourselves in, in our proper place. Um, so God does not show favoritism, but those that recognize God for who he is and live within his construct, he invites all 
people. So the story continues, and Peter, uh, he reiterates um, God's work through Jesus and Israel. Like, he tells these people the story of Israel's history. Uh, you can go back and read that in verse 36 through 43 there this week. But he reiterates, now, remember, these are we're the Israelite people. God worked in this way. He sent Jesus. We killed him. Uh, but he rose from the dead, okay? Um, verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers, that's referring to the Jewish people and one of their, their practices. Um, the Jewish people who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on even the Gentiles, for they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with him for a few days. Surely no one can stand in the way when the Spirit is at work. Does that hit you somewhere? Like I I titled uh, the message today, uh, A Change in the Church. And that's kind of a taboo subject, right? Uh, in our churches, quite often we take on this posture and this understanding of we have it all figured out. We know right from wrong, and the best thing we can do is stand by it. Now, there's truth and there's good in that, and we do seek truth, and we do seek to stand behind the truth that God has revealed to us. But look at what's happening in this text today. Everything that Peter and the Israelite people knew of God and his work in the world is going to be turned upside down as they are invited into unfamiliar territory and witness the Holy Spirit working in entirely new, remarkable, and beautiful ways. So the church begins to take the posture of a learner begins to accept the hospitality of the world around it, and in so doing, witnesses the remarkable work of God through the Holy Spirit. As the story continues, Peter goes on and he uh, begins preaching in Antioch. Now, not just to his Jewish friends, but to Gentile people in the city. And for a year, he goes there and he preaches, and people of all nations begin to believe in Jesus, begin to put their faith in him. And, uh, and, and Peter gets called in to the head church in Jerusalem. And they're like, we're going to need an explanation as to what's happening. Have you ever been called in uh, to, by your boss when you knew that your work or your performance was in question? That's oh, a terrible experience. Uh, when I was a youth pastor, I used to uh, take the teens on a camping trip every year. And uh, <laughs> I see people covering their eyes right now. They know what happens. Um, uh, every summer we'd go on this camping trip and 35 or 45 of us, you know, and, and kids uh, go camping uh, in tents and it was super fun. One year, um, we forgot to bring communion. Now, you have to understand the church that I was in was um, uh, kind of fundamentalist in the way they believed things and the way they operated. And, um, and uh, so communion was a really big deal. Now, having not brought the supplies for communion, I still knew how important communion was to these people. And I was like, I better err on caution and just use whatever supplies we have and do communion, right? It's still the heart of communion. Uh, this, we're still remembering Jesus and his sacrifice. And um, so we used what we had, uh, crackers and orange juice. We took communion together, and uh, we headed out Sunday afternoon uh, to come on home. 
Well, Wednesday night after youth group, I get the summons to, uh, to the office where the elders were waiting. And um, friends, I got torn apart. I mean, I just got eaten up over this decision. You probably know what these experiences are like, right? Uh, when, you, when you get called in, I, I mean, I made a mistake. It was out of ignorance. Like, I had no clue. I, I thought I was doing the more conservative and cautious thing. Uh, boy, was I completely wrong on that one. Uh, but we know what those experiences are like, where, where, our, um, where our, our actions are called into questions. It's an uncomfortable territory. And so Peter approaches this council uh, at Jerusalem, I'm sure with some fear. A debate takes place. Read about it in Acts chapter 15. Uh, and the primary question is, okay, so God is working in the Gentiles. I think we can accept that. But how much of Jewish law do they have to adhere to? Like, how much will they have to look like us to be a part of us? It's kind of a backwards question, but let's be honest, it's a very real question when we're out in this unfamiliar territory. Uh, so they're asking this question. Uh, Peter gets up, and he, uh, and, and he makes his claim and his statement. And in Acts 15, I'm just going to share this one little phrase of their conclusion with you, uh, but it's the conclusion to this story in Acts chapter 10, and it's maybe the pivotal moment in the story of Acts. It is the reason that you and I get to sit here, Gentile people, by the standards of Scripture, by the language of Scripture, get to sit here uh, and celebrate who Jesus is. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us that we not burden you too much, that we not make it too difficult for people to come to Jesus is the c- conclusion they'll make. And they'll, they'll make some stipulations on how in the first century this was going to operate. But they, they come to the conclusion in Acts 15, chapter 28, um, by this standard, by this criteria, criteria. They say, it seemed good to the Holy Spirit, so it seems good to us. And I really like that. I really like that. Hey, if, if the Holy Spirit's good with it, I'm going to roll with that, right? I'm going to do that. I love that posture and that reality. I'm in uncomfortable territory. We don't know what to do. This is going to change the entire nation uh, or nature of our nation and our religious practices. But hey, if the Holy Spirit's moving, I'm going to go. I'm going to go with it. I'm going to roll with it. So as a church uh, today, as we explore this text and consider what does this mean for us, um, we, we see the story, and here's the reality of it. God was moving, right? God was doing things. Things were changing, and the church found itself running like crazy to catch up trying to figure out what exactly is God doing and how do we come along as, uh, alongside what God is doing, his missional purposes in this world. It's a humbling um, and sometimes chaotic posture to take, right? To say, where is God at work and how do we come alongside the things that he's doing in this world? But I love it. It, it is a humble and, uh, and, and beautiful opportunity to be led by the Spirit of God as a people, as a church. They were led by the, the Spirit in this posture of learners, right? Uh, we don't have all the answers in this moment, in this place, in this culture, in this time. We don't have all the answers, but we'll follow where the Spirit leads in this posture of learners. We'll enter into the neighborhood to meet God there to ask questions of the needs of people, and to engage in the work that he is doing. 
It will not create structures or practices that make it difficult for people to come to faith in Jesus. Right? That's ultimately the conclusion that they'll make here in Acts 15. Seem good to the Holy Spirit and to us? We're not going to impose restrictions that will cause people to be unable to come to faith in Jesus. So as a church, we commit to that, inviting people to Jesus, operating in ways that invite people to know a risen Savior and his love. Final thoughts. Uh, Two characters in this text. Cornelius, and he feels and is on the outside right? He's those marginalized people uh, pushed to the outside, which is ironic because he was wealthy and successful and powerful. Yet in this story, he was the one being kept out of this circle. And if today uh, that f- you feel that, you can resonate with this idea of being on the outside, uh, we, we want to invite you in. We want to welcome you and we want to say, come to a community that revolves around the life and the work of Jesus, come and know safe relationship. Come and know life-giving opportunity in relationship with people and with God. If you are Cornelius and feel on the outskirts, talk with us, and let's begin a journey of walking together. Now, for many of us in the room, uh, we can maybe relate to Peter, sitting comfortably on a rooftop, feeling like he could continue to know the things he had already known. And then God drops a sheep bomb on him. Is that a thing? I don't know. God drops down from heaven uh, this sheet and all these animals, and God says, I'm going to turn your world and your understanding upside down. And I'm going to pray that for us, for, for us Peters in the room. God, will you open my eyes to where the Spirit is at work? Will you change my paradigms and understandings that I can come to know your beautiful work in this world and participate in that? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this time to explore your word. We thank you for Jesus, uh, and we thank you that the story continues, that we get to be the hands and feet of Jesus, uh, that we get to be his bride as a church. Father, that we get to live into this ongoing story of reconciliation, of healing in this world, in the lives of people. God, thank you for that. And today, Father, as we look into the story of Cornelius, uh, for those of us that resonate with being pushed to the margins, uh, Father, give us courage uh, to step in, to find safe places and ways to live in relationship. Father, for those of us that find ourselves sitting comfortably, uh, convinced of our own understanding and religious practice, uh, Father, will you push us outside of our comfort zones? that our eyes can be open to new things, to new opportunities, to partner with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'll close today with this benediction. So led by the Spirit, may we be a changed and a changing church. May we open our eyes to see God's remarkable work around us. May we be pliable enough to move outside of our comfort zones and participate in God's work. Led by the Spirit, may we be a changed and a changing church. Have a blessed week.